coming down the backside of the mountain here, but uh, and sure. no means to slight uh, any countries or any sub-region, uh, whether it's the Maghreb or the Eastern Mediterranean or the Nile Valley uh, states or the so-called Fertile Crescent uh, that includes uh, and then the Levant of Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, uh, Iraq, and Syria. Uh, but to focus on a big slice of this, we have none other than Andrew Parasoliti, Dr. Andrew Parasoliti, who obtained his uh, PhD from the University of Virginia. We both had the same uh, uh, dissertation um, examiners uh, for, uh, for our doctorates, uh, uh, the late Ruhollah Ramazani, there, and he has had some extraordinary positions of management and administration, all of which are a testimony to the degree to which people respect and admire this man, who he is, what he has been, and what his accomplishments are, and what what he has yet to achieve. Andrew Parasoliti from the El Molitor. Uh, thank you, John, and, then, and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you've been a friend for over 30 years uh, and a mentor to so many of us on the Arab Gulf region, and I appreciate that. And this forum has been one of the key forums, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations Policy Makers event that uh, I think is one of the key events in Washington every year, and it seems to just keep getting better un under your leadership. Uh, I'd also mention, one correction, master's degree from the University of Virginia, PhD from SAIS, hey. so we share uh, that. And and uh, Rui Ramazani was, of course, my professor at Virginia and on my dissertation committee at SAIS, right. just like you, yes. right? Exactly. So uh, thank you again. We have a fantastic panel to talk about Iraq and Syria. Let me do some very quick introductions. This is going to be a, a conversation rather than uh, present, you know, presentations. Uh, Ambassador James Jeffrey, he was the U.S. Department of State Special Representative for Syria and also served as Special Envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. He's also a former U.S. Ambassador to Iraq and Turkey. Dr. Denise Natali, she is the director of the Institute for National Security Studies at the National Defense University. She served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations. She is one of the top, if not the top, American expert on the Kurds. And Dr. Abbas Khadam, he is the Atlantic Council Iraq Initiative Director and Senior Fellow there, and the author of Reclaiming Iraq, the 1920 revolution and the founding of the modern state. Let's get right into it. Last month, a new Iraqi government was formed. That government excluded Shia populist cleric Muqtad al-Sadr. His party had won the most seats in the special elections, but he had decided to step back from Iraqi politics and the rival coalition framework coalition of mostly Shia parties went ahead and formed a government just a few weeks ago. The new government is seen as more closely aligned with Iran and includes a return to influence of former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki and the ascendance of even more Iran-linked militias and parties. Dr. Abbas, let's start with you. What can we expect or what do you see as the challenges and opportunities for this new Iraqi government, is it good or bad for U.S. policy and interests in Iraq and the region? 
Thank you very much. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, before I answer this uh, very important question, um, uh, first, thank you for inviting me. I would like to take a moment to mention uh, something special. Today is the seventh anniversary of the loss of Dr. Ahmed Chalabi. And Dr. Ahmed Chalabi's uh, death was a really uh, an untimely loss, not that there is a timely loss. And he is the man who probably is behind Iraqi, Iraqis and Iraq having a chance to do what they are doing now, and it's their responsibility to see the journey through for, uh, thank you, Intifad, uh, for, for, for this uh, experiment, hopefully that we will see it through to get a consolidated democracy, uh, a man of great character, great ethics, and also a man who loved Iraq and worked for it throughout his life in and out of the country. Uh, let me go back then to the question uh, that you had. Uh, it is a welcome uh, event and occurrence that Iraqis did finally break the, dead, the deadlock and form a government. The October 2021 election was supposed to be an early election. Uh, and an early election, by definition, means you want to have a swift and fast change of a government. But it took a year after the, uh, the, the uh, election itself um, because of the um, first the, the, the hurdles that the law and the constitution have for before making a or, or forming a government, but also because of the lack of trust and lack of consensus, not just in, within one group, but it was across ethno-sectarian uh, dividing lines. Uh, the actually, the de jure reason for the delay was, in fact, the um, disagreement over the presidency rather than the uh, prime minister and the government, because that's where you needed two-thirds to have uh, to, to move forward. Um, so um, the, um, uh, the the government that was supposed to be an interim government, Mustafa Al-Kadhimi's government, uh, ended up serving the entire balance of the term of Adil Abdel Mahdi, the resigning prime minister who was elected in 2018. And now we have a government that is seated exactly at the regular, what would have been a regular government turnout. Um, a lot of people did speak or speculate about the government of of, uh, of um, uh, Muhammad Shia Sudani, mostly because people look at past uh, record or past history and they assume that it always predicts future performance. I would caution against that because first, uh, we don't really know how the events will, will unfold. Also, knowing Muhammad Shia Sudani, he's a man who has a good reputation of competence and integrity in his previous uh, posts. He's uh, one of the few Iraqi politicians who served in various posts without having any corruption charges against him, and uh, that is a rarity. Um, also, again, people do have a point because at the end of the day, uh, the um, uh, framework coalition that 
uh, appointed Muhammad Shah Sudani uh, does have a checkered history uh, on uh, in the past, um, and and also I believe that uh, the um, the situation in Iraq itself is still unbalanced politically. You mentioned the withdrawal of Muqtada Sadr, whose um, uh, coalition won the highest number of seats. It's 22% of parliament, really, when you talk about highest or largest winner, putting it in really uh, in numbers. This is not a big win. Uh, Maliki in 2014 uh, won uh, a 95, and then it became 105 seats and couldn't become a prime minister. Sadr had 73 seats. So it is really, um, you know, in Iraq, the way that these parliamentary seats are allocated, they are allocated geographically and by extension uh, um, um, ethnically and, and sectarianly. I believe that uh, no one will be ever able to impose their own will or their own vision on how to govern Iraq. Consensus if this law and the current constitutional provisions remain in place, uh, they, you have to have consensus, and that's the reason. But I think uh, already we have seen a couple of um, a priori perceptions shattered. Uh, a lot of people thought that the United States would not be able to have uh, to, to have a good start with Sudani. Uh, we saw that he reached out to the United States. He met the ambassador uh, a couple of times in, in various settings. And also, uh, the U.S. Uh, official statement was welcoming. And I think this is a good start, but I would caution my friend uh, Mohammed Shah Sudani to back that good start with performance and positions that can or that justify the United States go further than the initial welcoming of his government and work with him uh, hand to hand. I think to have a chance uh, at success, any Iraqi government needs to have good relations with the United States as uh, it has to have good relations regionally and elsewhere on the international theater. So I'm optimist. Ambassador Jeffrey, are you optimistic about the new Iraqi government? And tell us uh, your observations about Iran's role and influence in Iraq. Uh, well, you answered half of my question, uh, half of your question with the second part of it. Uh, I'm less optimistic. I'm certainly happy that the country has a government. Uh, at the end of an almost a long period in 2011, uh, 2010 rather, uh, that was when we swallowed hard and accepted the Maliki government um, in December of uh, <clears throat> that year because of the same reason we wanted to have a government. Uh, I'm not as optimistic, and the reason is because of Iran. Uh, we have five conflicts in the entire Middle East. You know, we think of it as an area of total chaos. It really isn't. Okay. Right now, the bulk of the region is doing okay. Mm -hmm. Five places. Lebanon, yeah. Iraq, Libya. Syria, Yemen, and Libya. Of the five, the one that's closest to a serious ceasefire and impossible resolution is Libya. What makes the other four what do they have in common? One word, four letters. Iran. Uh, we have to recognize that Iran has an agenda of playing off of the weaknesses in the Arab states of the Middle East, the most vulnerable, to expand itself in a hegemonic fashion throughout the region. 
Uh, the Iraqi government formation was decisively shaped as it was when I was there in 2010 by Iranian influence. And this influence is not quite the same as the influence we might have used in 2010, we used earlier, uh, and could have, but didn't use in 2021 and 22. Uh, this involves, uh, as we say uh, somewhat comically here in Washington, all elements of national power. <laughs> it involved political pressure, economic pressure, assassinations when necessary, uh, use or threatened use of the militias that swear allegiance not to Baghdad, not to Najaf, but to uh, <clears throat> Tehran. And uh, the result is a government that, however good Mr. Sudani is personally, uh, will be very limited in its ability to chart a course for Iraq that will meet the needs of its people and nestle it in a stable, peaceful way in the region. Here's what to watch for. Will Iraq resolve the set of energy differences with the Kurdistan regional government? Where Iran is playing a big role, not only by influencing judicial actions, but when it feels like it, firing ballistic missiles at Kurdish energy uh, installations. What will the Iraqi central government do about this violation of its uh, national uh, territorial integrity. What about the exploitation of the gas? I think that when I first met you, we were talking about that, and we've been talking about that for 20 years. How come the Kurds, with one-tenth the resources, actually produce enough gas for their own resources and try to export some? I don't think any gas is being produced south of Kurdistan. Well, there is some. There is some, but not very much. The point is, all of the plans, and there are tens of billions of dollar plans, have gone down the drain. The main explanation I've gotten is Iran. Iran sells both electricity and gas, and it doesn't want Iraq to have more independence. Those are the issues where you can see the influence of an outside state. As long as that isn't resolved, as long as Iraqis cannot make their own decisions on key issues such as relations between Baghdad and Erbil, and where they're going to go on their energy policy, Iran's influence needs to be condemned and contested. Denise, uh, Natali, um, uh, let's pick it up right there. How do you see the dispute between Baghdad and Erbil over energy resources? Uh, do you see this dispute intensifying? Uh, or do you see progress toward an oil law? And if you can, weave it into uh, the Kurdish uh, political issues. As uh, Abbas mentioned when we started, one of the holds up, hold up for the government was resolution of the dispute between the KDP and the PUK oh. over sure. the presidency. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Andrew and, and Dr. Anthony and the group. It's wonderful to be here today. Um, let me just start with what, what this embedded in. And this, it's, it is wonderful, and I agree with my colleagues, that the Iraqis have come together to select their government on, on their own and on their own time. But what, what is this government? It's, it's a return to 2003, the, the system, the Mohassasa system, where seats are distributed according to ethnic and sectarian quotas. 
What does that mean? It means that you're immediately, that you're going to have the type of legislative inefficiencies, the inability to pass legislation effectively because you have so many entrenched interests based on a quota system. It means that the, any, any hopes or interests in majoritarianism are pretty much off the table at, at the moment. And what, what does that mean? And we're going to get to the answer of the question about the Kurds. Is, you know, this is different. It's not 2003, where the Kurds had a significant amount of support by the Americans, where they allied with the Shia on federalism where the, they were relatively unified coming together. M most of that is not there anymore. So do I have, you know, do I have hope in general? I mean, this is very good as a stabilizing moment. But the immediate impact is if people right now in Iraq, we are in 2022, where there's demands for reform, addressing corruption, addressing many of the things that the people on the street wanted, that's unlikely to be changed in my view because you're not talking about one individual Prime Minister al-Sudani. He is a, a byproduct of the system. And the system right now has entrenched political party interests and political elites running ministries with Kurds, uh, Sunni Kurds, Sunni Arabs, Shia Arabs, you know, divided in the way that they are. Added to that, what's happened over the last 20 years or 15 years is highly, Iraq is still highly, highly fragmented. So you have the Shia house fragmented, the Sunni Arab, the Shia Arab house, the Sunni Arab house fragmented, and the Kurds. So we, we have to go into this, you know, I don't want to try to be a downer here, but nothing, you know, many of these institutional legacies that have you know, become embedded since 2003 are still in Iraq. Decisions are not going to be made efficiently when you have the Masasa system with Sunni Shia Kurd quotas going on. Just, that, that's just the way, and also minorities. Now back to the Kurds in Baghdad. Let's just say in general, um, the pattern of behavior between Iraq, uh, the Iraq, the Iraqi government in Baghdad and the Kurds has been during and after, immediately after elections, People reach out, they make deals, they're making deals with the Kurds. This is a pattern of behavior that's going on. Alliances are made on general issues, right? You know, Barzani's deal with Maliki, I think this is more of a bone to Maliki than it was to Barzani, may have bumped up Bar Masood Barzani a bit here. But at the end of the day, there are the three issues that, that shaped Kurdish state relations since 2003, or part of this before. Hydrocarbons, as Ambassador Jeffrey indicated, the disputed territories, and the budget, revenues and Peshmerga salaries. That has not changed. Those three issues are still going to be on the table. Right now, you have a Supreme Court ruling from the Iraqi government that has annulled or denied or the legitimacy of Kurdish oil, of oil contracts negotiated by the Kurdistan regional government and international oil companies. This was, you could have seen this coming. You have the International Chamber of Commerce legislation between Iraq and the government of Turkey. We're talking about $24 billion that's on the table here that Turkey may, that may be due. So, you know, it does this, what I see this, it gives the political elites, the Kurds, the Iraqi government, more chances now to maneuver or more chances now to make deals. But at the end of the day, what matters to the Kurds is the Kurdish interests, is Kurdish autonomy. They don't care what's happening in Baghdad. So the Kurds have generally, they'll cut deals with whomever they need to cut deals with so that they can advance Kurdish autonomy, full stop. One. Two, 
<laughs> the Kurds are very divided right now. I don't see this going to be civil war, but they couldn't even decide. It wasn't just the presidency position, Andrew. There were every other position that, was, that needed to be put. It's pretty ironic that the Kurds now have positions in Baghdad, and they're fighting about, on themselves about what, who, who gets what position. The KDP says they should get three. The PUK wants more than three. You know, so understand again that these limitations to, to, to where, how far Baghdad and the Kurdistan region can go. Yes, there could be external influences, but there was red lines. There are still red lines that exist between Iraqi sovereignty and Kurdish autonomy. And the Kurdish referendum still rings in people's ears. So the question is, how far will the Kurds push? Um, how far will the Iraqi government, and, and you know, people come together on those issues. The idea that the Kurds continue to export oil without paying back into the Iraqi, uh, to the Iraqi budget, I don't think that there's an Iraqi in, 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 in the government that thinks that this is you know, a fair way to go. So those issues will only be able to go so far. I don't see, again, and in the past, final point, the United States was very involved directly in negotiating those disputes between the Kur Erbil and Baghdad, right? Make it, that's not the case right now, as much. So, you know, how much is the Kurdistan region gonna give? And remember, they didn't, they're not in Baghdad on a unified ticket. Barzani allied with Maliki, and the PUK was with the other group. So there are different and more complex relationships, and we talk about the Kurds, when you should talk about different Kurdish groups acting in their interests in the regions that they represent. And I, I don't think that that's actually necessarily a bad thing. Regarding the Kurdish divisions, I can't resist, uh, and I'll monitor comment just today, our senior correspondent, Amber Zaman, has the first public interview with Lahore Talibani since he had this split with the PUK. Uh, that just went up a few hours ago. So, wow. for, so for those of you who are interested in that, there's uh, some interesting material in that interview. Um, Abbas, let me come back to you and let's push down a little on the on the Sadr question. Sadr has populist appeal among a certain generation of uh, disenfranchised younger Shia. There's also another group that has felt uh, disenfranchised, and that's the Tashreen movement. We saw the emergence of some uh, independence since October 2019, when we had the demonstrations in Iraq. Tell us a little about the feeling on the street and among young people when they look at this government that's now put together in Iraq and see more of the same. When what the, the, Denise was talking about, we're looking at something, a, a constellation of figures in power that are very familiar and representative of a familiar system. It's not really a sign of change, which many in the Iraqi street have been calling for. That's right. I mean, change in Iraq is very hard given the, the law itself, how to form a government, the constitution. Uh, Iraqis do not elect a prime minister, a president, or even a ruling party. Iraqis elect 329 negotiators. And those negotiators normally... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> and those negotiators, many of them, work for 
in, in a consolidated, aggregated way to a few bosses. So at the end of the day, it's five, six, seven people who really run this thing. And these people who run the show from behind, most of them are not even elected. So it doesn't matter what you do. That's one thing. Second issue, as I mentioned earlier, and, and you know, again, is this segregation, um, um, ethno-sectarian segregation of the seats in the parliament. You run the elections 100 times, and you get the same numbers in the parliament. When your largest winner is 22% of the parliament in the seats number, and he needs, in order to get his way, as Sadr learned, he needs a coalition where others will be twice more than he is. He needs 44 point, um, you know, 44% uh, of the parliament to join him. So the, 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 the coalition will be larger than the coalition maker. And that's a problem. So, so yeah, this is something you cannot go around. But back to your, what you said, you are right. Sadr is important. He has a very loyal and very vibrant uh, constituency. Uh, they are, uh, I would say, unconditionally loyal. But the, his problem is that these are people are not expandable. It is he gets his his constituency, and that's it. Even this jump from 54 seats in 2018 to 73 seats in 2021 is not a jump in popularity. In fact, he lost in the raw numbers. He, less people voted for the Sadrists in 2021 than in 2018. Uh, what, uh, you know, the, what accounts for this jump, uh, leap into the seat count, uh, it is really his utilization or the circumstances that made him a favorite in winning l larger on these seats because he did not compete with anyone within his own coalition while his opponents competed against with one another. And since the, this, the list is no longer owning the votes, the candidate does. So those eight, it's just, I could just, without elaborately uh, babbling about it, imagine when we have two-party system and we have an independent candidate in the United States who is either a liberal or a conservative. He takes votes from the other, from his own uh, ideological counter, uh, um, fellow ideological candidate, and therefore the other uh, candidate gets a better chance. It is exactly that. So the, the, the uh, Sutter's opponents within the Shia community com competed against each other, and they ended up with smaller votes than the Sutter's who ran alone and got all the Sutter's votes. But if you think about it, it is very hard, really, uh, for, for legitimacy's sake, for so many other reasons, uh, to uh, not treat Sadr lightly. Uh, before that, let me mention also, you brought another group who are the independents. And logically, both of them were on the receiving end of, of this process uh, that didn't go well for both of them. You think that they would join forces, but the problem is there is a lot of bad blood between them uh, and, 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 and each other. Um, Sadr um, has clashed with, with the Tashrinis a couple of times, and people died in these clashes in Najaf and in Baghdad and in others. And also they are ideologically different. To add more to that is that many people who run on the Tishrin list, many of them actually were from the traditional parties list. They run as independents and immediately they, uh, they show their true colors. So there isn't really much of an 
an independent representation in the parliament as we speak. Um, and, and again, independence came from all walks of, of life in Iraq, from all ethno-sectarian groups. It's very hard to put them together. At the end of the day, they will caucus with their fellow Shia, fellow Kurd, fellow uh, Sunni, and some of them remained independent, uh, to, to, to be fair to them as well. So that is the thing. I, I believe that right now the biggest challenge for Mohammed Shia Sudan and his government is to heal uh, this this uh, divide. One year of most venomous discourse has been uh, launched from one, one side to another. We've seen dehumanizing language that I have not seen in my entire life among Iraqis. Uh, we've seen also uh, a lot of hatred. Uh, we've seen people are talking about each other with terms like the enemy rather than the opponent or the rival, etc. Healing that is important, and also magnanimity needs to be restored and, and or, or placed. We didn't have much magnanimity in Iraqi politics, but it needs to be there. Um, the, the, the winning coalition and the government should not treat this win as a, uh, a, a, some spoils that they can have and distribute among themselves and disregard uh, those who lost. They really need to do that, and probably the best message they can send is um, setting a date for an, for, for an early elections. I know that I just said that you're on the elections 100 times, you won't change more, but this is the only constitutional and legal way to bring the Sadrists back, and also probably to let people benefit from the lessons of the 2010 election and those who boycotted, hopefully, either confirm that they are apathetic and they deserve the government they get, or they change their way, especially given the fact that many changes happened in the last election, even with the little participation, more participation will have more changes. But everybody needs to really touch the ground rather than just go high, whether in opposition or in government. At the end of the day, it is their responsibility, and the challenges ahead are bigger than Sudan, bigger than Sadr, and bigger than any one government. They need to get together to at least put Iraq on the beginning of the track so they can move forward. Right. And I believe just uh, to give a heads up, people can submit questions. Sure. Are there note cards or? Uh, yes, but I, I don't have any here at the moment. You Good. go ahead. Just a heads up so we we, we be sure we have time. Um, so, um, Denise, let me come back to you with another question. Uh, on, on the Kurdistan region, one of the pressure points that the Kurdistan region in Iraq is feeling from Iran is in the north regarding Kurdish groups that may be crossing the border and involved in the protests that are taking place in the Iranian Kurdistan following the uh, death of uh, Masa Amini in custody for a hijab violation and those demonstrations have spread all over Iran but they're especially pronounced uh, up in that part of Iran and how do you see that issue and uh, what's happening there between Iran, the KRG, and how Iraqi Kurds feel about that issue and what might happen next. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. There's two, do I look at this in two ways? One is the general Kurdish population on the streets um, affiliating and identifying and mobilizing behalf of this woman who was tragically you know, killed. So that's the population on the streets, and of course there's opposition. But the, the bigger issue is what you should and shouldn't expect from the Kurdish parties in the Kurdistan region and the government. That is, 
there's only so far the KRG and the Kurds can go with Iran. I don't care which party it is, one more or less, because of not only their geographical location, which is they share, I don't know, several hundred kilometers of border with Iran, that is the PUK, but also because of this long political history that the Kurds have with Iran and they still have some dependencies on them. So this idea of people going back and forth, whether it's groups supporting this the protesters, um, I mean, there's been the KDPI, the Kurdish Democratic Party of Iran has been in the Kurdistan region. You've had Iranian groups in the Kurdistan. This has been going on for decades. When I first came in 1992, there's all these Iranian Kurdish groups, and, and they promised to get, and they're in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, and, I, and they're all divided, by the way. You go down a street, and this one's here, and this one's here. And, you know, you, you go to C1, and, and Komala's on this side, and this one's on this side. And they all made promises with one of the parties. They wouldn't, you know, we promise we won't sell you out, but you have to cut deals with Iran because you need water and you need energy and you need electricity. So the reality on the ground is this idea that it is a larger issue about how do we, you know, um, conflate a group's ethnicity and assume that they all should be ha acting the same way because they're Kurds. They're going to act in their political self-interests. And the, the Patriotic Union of the PUK groups cannot and will not cross a red line with Iran. You saw that in the referendum. I'll give you a bigger issue. The Kurdish referendum in 2017. I was there the week before. I spoke to some of the Kurdish leaders in the Taliban. You know, there were the threats made to them had they gone through with this. By Iran, we'll cut your water off, we'll shut your border down. I was there when they shut the border for three weeks because of, you know, they took some of these Pazduran people. So they are not going to break relations with Iran. That is not going to happen. And even the KDP, who had a lot of trading in the, in the Choman area, they're, they're not going to break relations with Iran either. They'll be a little harder on it. They'll use more their stronger language. But this is just a geopolitical reality of the region. One group being far more dependent on the region, on Iran, than the other. Jim, uh, Denise said earlier, uh, when we look back at some of these policy initiatives and uh, U.S. engagement was much more active than it is now, and you've been involved with the rock policy for the better part of the last decade in one senior role or another. Should the U.S. be more involved, and if so, how should it be more involved? Uh, Yes, it should. Uh, second, first of all, sunk costs, particularly in Iraq, but to some degree also in Syria, having been in there now for the better part of a decade. But secondly, because the Middle East matters. Uh, this administration, understandably, as did others, talked about a pivot to uh, Asia, and then suddenly it was pivoting every moment of its time to Ukraine. Uh, and thinking that, well, we don't need the Middle East, and then the Middle East decided, yes, you do, be it uh, our oil and gas, be it our votes in the UN, be it our stability, or be it, frankly, uh, the validity of American commitments, because the commitments are still there. We can talk about, oh, we are pivoting away from the region, but we're leaving most of our forces still there, other than the huge troop concentrations we had in Iraq and Afghanistan that are, of course, gone. Uh, but the basic uh, baseline 
of mainly Navy and Air Force and Air Defense Forces are still there. Uh, we have our uh, set of security relationships that are very deep and broad and are very advantageous to us. Uh, and this normally is plugged into a larger regional policy. I don't see it. I see an understanding that we have to, in Iraq and Syria, uh, keep forces on the ground and lead the, with the coalition and with our on-the-ground partners against the Islamic State, because everybody gets that. It's counterterrorism. It's like motherhood and apple pie here since 9-11. Uh, but beyond that, and in particular, what kind of a security relationship and against what, this administration has not answered. It is somewhere between uh, the Obama administrations, to quote Barack Obama, uh, to the um, uh, editor of the Atlantic, uh, <clears throat> Saudi Arabia and thus all of us have to share the region with Iran and the Trump administrations uh, contesting across the board Iran's uh, various activities from its march through the region to its nuclear file. Uh, this administration is giving lip service a little bit to the share the region with the, its uh, uh, now on life support effort to get back to the JCPOA nuclear agreement. And uh, it gives uh, even less lip service, but still on the ground, effectively doing much the same thing in Iraq and in Syria, and holding its nose with the Saudis and to some degree in Yemen, uh, and uh, most recently and very successfully in Lebanon with the uh, gas agreement. So it is doing this, but it isn't seeming to do this with any strategic purpose. Again, its argument that we're just too busy, we don't have the bandwidth, is total BS as somebody who spent almost 40 years in government. We don't have enough Patriot batteries, we don't have enough aircraft carriers to play a huge role in every area, but that's not primarily what you need in the region. You need diplomatic presence and you need an overall policy. Now, I have my views of what that policy can be. Many of you and some of the administration have others. But the main thing you need is a consistent policy that everybody understands and that all of these other elements, the 70,000 troops, 70,000 troops that we still have in the region, all of our agreements, our economic interests are all organized into. I don't see that. If somebody in the audience sees that, please, you know, don't ask a question, make a comment, because I'd love to know what it is. John, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, well, maybe and, uh, if Ambassador Jeffrey and, and Denise uh, could both comment, and your, your comments as well, uh, uh, Abbas. <clears throat> this one uh, deserves a bit uh, background context and perspective, a bit more on the Turkish uh, component vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Iraq and the Kurds and the Syrian uh, component vis-a-vis <clears throat> -vis the Kur uh, Kurds and Iraq and extremism uh, and uh, insurgent uh, ISIS groups amongst the re large refugee populations and the education of a, of a new generation of uh, Syrians coming to, to age who've had uh, ISIS teachers uh, and, and refugees elsewhere. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the number of uh, Kurds in Turkey about four times the number of Kurds in Iran, Syria, uh, and Iraq combined, mm -hmm. uh, or double, something like that. Double. I mean, the, the preponderance of Kurds and the Kurdish issue, Kurdish question, Kurdish concerns uh, with regard to regional uh, security and conflict and stability have been uh, uh, not devoid of a, of a Turkish-centric dimension. Then there's the Israeli component uh, from the establishment of, of Israel on 
trying to uh, sort of weaken and divide its neighbors and those not at, uh, in a peace treaty relationship with Israel um, have had a superb relationship overall with various Kurdish groups there. And even with the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, the Israeli-Kurdish uh, uh, relationship uh, tightened, expanded, intensified. Um, there's this aspect that has a domestic component in the United States of what, uh, what Israel wants, and what Israel wants has a Turkish uh, co component sometimes, and has had a Kurdish component uh, quite a few times. Indeed, um, after the June 67 war, when the, uh, the Israelis defeated uh, Egypt's army and the Egyptians fled, the Israeli uh, army scooped up uh, the uh, Egyptian uh, military equipment and put it on vessels, sailed it around to the uh, Abaddon, offloaded it, trucked it up to the north and gave it to the Kurds. We know this because of the serial numbers that we found uh, in uh, the captured weapons in northern Iraq, uh, which had come from uh, the Sinai Desert in Egypt in June 67. So the Turkish component, a bit more either of both of you, and the Israeli component, either of both or all three of you. Jim, you want to start? Yeah, on the Turkish component, uh, it's very hard to summarize mm -hmm. uh, something as complex as that in a few words, but I'll try. One is uh, Turkey has to deal with one domestic issue that is not pressing, but it's ultimately existential, which is the um, continued integration and stability with its Kurdish population. Uh, in the context of the PKK, which while it's largely out of Turkey, is trying mm -hmm. to uh, play a different role. Secondly, uh, it has an existential threat from Russia, which despite all of Erdogan's uh, you know, deals he does with Putin, most recently getting the uh, uh, grain shipments back, uh, Turkey still sees as its number one thing. Thirdly, uh, a concern about uh, Iran, uh, not as an existential threat, but as a competing power as it's been for 400 years. And anything that shows Iranian complicity with either Russia, which we have plenty of evidence now, and of the PKK, which particularly in Iraq we have a considerable amount of uh, now. So it's a complex picture. Uh, Turkey has very good relations with the Kurds of northern uh, Iraq, particularly the Barzanis, but that is, as we saw in 2017, limited. It will not accept independence or broad autonomy, uh, and that limits uh, Turkey's ability to, if you will, play the Kurdish card against either Tehran or Tehran slash Baghdad. Uh, but nonetheless, it's an important player, and I'll leave uh, to my colleagues Israel. Denise? Yeah, can I, I just want to jump into about Turkey, um, and I agree with Jim. Obviously, Turkey's main concern has been, will continue to be the PKK and all of its offshoots. Um, what has happened since 92 or before, but let's say 92, is when Kurdish groups from Turkey, many PKK affiliated, started dribbling into northern Iraq when I was there at the time. And so now what was once Turkey's relatively contained Kurdish problem in its civil war that went on is now, as Jim has indicated, entrenched in northern Iraq, in the Kandil Mountains, entrenched in Syria, because 
that's who's controlling northeastern Syria. And of course, now parts of the PKK are, have been in and out of Iran as well. So Turkey's PKK issue is a transnationalized PKK issue. Turkey has got over a dozen military bases inside northern Iraq agreed upon with the Barzanis. And, you know, there had been moments when I was there where you're talking about 20 kilometers in, Turkish tanks 20 kilometers in northern Iraq. Those bombings of the PKK in the mountains in the northern Iraq continue because now the PKK, after during the ISIS campaign, is now entrenched in Sinjar and some of these disputed territories, and now it's become localized so that local groups who are against both of the KRG are now supporting the PKK. PKK is also very influential in Suleimania area, or has got, so the point is, it's, they're dispersed, and Turkey's got a much bigger headache on its hands because clamping down on this dispersed problem is, is not dissipated. In Israel, as we know, the, the, Israel, the Israeli relationship with the Kurds, have, and you can go back pre-1960s, but there has been that Mullah Mustafa Barzani, who was the former leader of the Kurdish movement, had a relationship with, with the Israelis to fight against the Ba'athists, and then that continued. Uh, there was a, a Jewish-Kurdish population in, in in northern Iraq too. I know when I was there again, we had sent some Kurdish-Jewish communities back to, to Israel. Um, and that relationship continues over shared security concerns over Iran, which exists today, uh, and, other, and other concerns. But again, um, I say this with, when we say just, if there's a message, be careful when we say the Kurds because it's about which, you say which group, you should say that follows, okay? So who, which group are they negotiating with? More times than not, when you're negotiating with one, somebody's trying to use that to play off the other. Thank you. Abbas? Well, uh, on both, I think both Turkey and Iran, and I need to say that carefully, so not to be misunderstood, uh, both these countries have legitimate concerns when it comes to their security. Both of them have groups that are violent, militant, that are in, on Iraqi territory. On the other hand, I think their response is illegitimate. They have great relationship with the Iraqi government, both of them. They have diplomatic channels open and all kinds of other channels, yet they decide to either bomb and kill Iraqi civilians, both of them. Iran bombs in Iraq, kills Iraqi civilians, and also Turkey bombs in Iraq and keeps Iraqi, uh, kills Iraqi civilians. And that's clearly not the way uh, to go. Also, uh, the, the Turks have used this as a pretext to keep troops inside Iraq, to keep military bases, uh, and also to insist that there are two Turkeys, actually, when I speak with Turkish diplomats in Iraq, and more than one, more, in more than one occasion, there are two Turkeys. One Turkey that really is so aggressive, trying to make facts on the ground, and that's mostly the military, and also some elements in the Erdogan administration. And there are the diplomats who hate this, actually, uh, because they are doing great work. They visit Iraqis day and night in all Iraq. They eat as many foods of or recipes that Turks eat or don't eat, just to make the Iraqis feel impressed. But on the end of the day, their work and their diplomatic effort is undercut by these aggressive behaviors. Same thing, I mean, Iran probably is, has a less time, hard time, because 
it has other tools. Uh, but both, I think, Iran and Turkey have malign activities. They have undermined Iraq, and they have used Iraqis as sandbags for their own security and their own interest. And that's quite, um, I mean, you know, I, I don't need even to describe what it is. Um, I said illegitimate already. Uh, the other thing is, you know, when it comes to Israel World War II, I think Iraq is a, is a peculiar nation when it comes to Israel. First, there is no reason in the world for Iraq to make relations with Israel a priority. They don't share a border, they don't have any trade issues, they don't have anything that puts these two countries together. And also Iraq, where everything is politicized, the last thing you want to open. We already saw little gestures like in a conference no one even claimed responsibility for in Erbil. And what did we get after that? A law that gives the death penalty for anyone who shakes hands with an Israeli anywhere, even if he doesn't know him. I mean, in, in the past, we had one item in our general code on uh, uh, normalization and, and supporting Israel. Now we have a full law that leaves no, it's airtight. No matter how you can wiggle yourself out, there is no way you could do it. That was the reason because of that. You could go and have relations with places that have dictatorships and tyrants where they chop your head if you say no. But in Iraqis, no prime minister can sign something like that at the current circumstances and get away with it in a, in a country that is so politicized, where people love to revolt for much less uh, issues than this. So I think it is, it is uh, Iraq is, if you make a 100-page priorities list, Israel will not make that 100 page. And I believe that this is, it should be realized. Um, as Iraq is where the Arabs were, 40, 50 years ago maybe today. Uh, and, and that needs to be, to be realized. Uh, things could change. I don't know. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the circumstances, it's not just about Iraq and about Israel. There are so many other things that are there. But I think pushing Iraq towards uh, anything that has to do with normalization, whether it's by making relations with the KRG or with certain Iraqis, it's not going to be helpful. It will backlash, and I believe that it will, at the end of the day, even make the distance towards that go longer. Uh, because at this time, you can only expect uh, more knee-jerk reactions that will create laws and create others where we will be in a worse situation than we were yesterday. So. People have to really look at the realities, have to calculate them better, rather than to act uh, in a way that is misguided. Um, Iraq is, again, Iraq is not Bahrain. Iraq is not the, the UAE. Iraq is not Jordan, not Egypt. The, the last two countries, of course, had reasons. They had territories, they have borders, they have all of that. Again, UAE and Bahrain, maybe Saudi or Morocco and others, they have different political circumstances that can allow this kind of debate. In Iraq, people could literally be killed talking about this if, before the law gets uh, to them and the law also will execute them according to the new law. Uh, Denise and Jim want to jump in. Uh, yeah, yeah, just quickly, when we're talking about Turkey and the PKK, there's a couple of things, though, you've got to remember, too. This re Turkey had an agreement, this was going on during the Iran-Iraq War, where Turkey and the Iraqi government had a search and seize agreement 
that they were allowed to, Turkey was allowed to cross the border or, you know, and seize the terrorists, which are the PKK, who were taking, taking advantage of that moment, of that, of that unstable inst moment. But be clear, too, that the PKK came in during the de-ISIS campaign, during the, during the, you know, ISIS, when ISIS was in Iraq. The PKK was there, and they were generally um, very supported in many camps by the local populations because they were really a fighting force in pushing ISIS out of some of these areas. And they are, many, many people say they're the ones that saved the Yazidis. So the Yazidis were indebted to them. There's an area in Sinjar that a lot of these PKK forces came down from Kandil, helped the Yazidis, and they were revered. That was a while ago. Now they want them out. And it's not just Turkey that wants them out. Many of the, the Kurds are saying, okay, fine, get out now. Get out of the Kurdistan region. And they're not. And so they have set up uh, Yazidi forces that are PKK Yazidi forces. So when the PKK says, I'm going to leave Sinjar, because, and this leaves the Iraqi Kurds stuck, because they, you know, they have a deal with, the, with Turkey. And so the, these attacks that are happening are happening because they can't get the PKK out of these areas. I'm just saying the PKK has become a, an extreme nuisance, to say the least, yeah. that is there will be continued attacks as long as these people, this group is stuck and embedded in northern Iraq. Yeah. Jim? Yeah, yeah we, we have a fundamental disagreement and it's a very serious one. Uh, and I don't want to make this Turkey's intervention in country X, in this case Iraq versus Iran's per se, because I'll go beyond country X, which is Iraq, and I'll go beyond Turkey. Uh, the instability that we all know about in both Syria and Iraq for the last 30 years has produced defensive interventions by the United States and the coalition in both Iraq and Syria, by Turkey in both Iraq and Syria, by Israel in Syria, and much as I dislike what they're doing, by Russia to preserve what it already had in Syria. That's fundamentally different from what Iran is doing in Syria and Iraq. It is not trying to protect its borders from the minimal threat from the PKK offshoot. Sometimes they work with the PKK, sometimes they bomb the PJAC, but it's never been a major problem the way it has been to Turkey. They're trying to create a situation in both Iraq and Syria like Lebanon where they fundamentally control the whole country. That's not what Russia is trying to do, or Israel, or we, or Turkey and Syria. It's not what we and Turkey are trying to do in Iraq. That doesn't mean these interventions make sense. It doesn't mean they're not a big problem for the Iraqis. It doesn't mean that under some circumstances they may be illegal under international law. But you have to look at the fundamental issues here. And the issue is that Iran is an expansionist power. None of these other countries, not even Russia, is playing a similar role. Denise, Abbas, do you want to... No, I mean, there is no disagreement. I think it's, uh, it's clear. I mean, I mentioned that Iran is, is a peculiar situation. Iran is a, it's a different story, but at the end of the day, um, you know, none of that minimizes oh, the, the other work. I mean, clearly, as I said, I mean, I was clear. Iran has been using Iraqis, and not just the Shia, by the way, all Iraqis, mm -hmm. as sandbags, and I mentioned that, and I'm repeating it again, for, to, to, to protect its own security. There is no question on that. But at the end of the day, Iraqis are, are just as dead when they are dead by the, by the work of the Iranians or the Turks or anyone else for in the past who have either 
actively or by their financing, they facilitated terrorism inside Iraq. Uh, the fact that Iran is our opponent and Turkey is not as much, that doesn't make a difference. Let's look at it from, you know, stand in Baghdad and take a look at how that is. Uh, all these countries have been meddling in Iraq, all these countries have been destabilizing Iraq, and, a, and, and I must also mention that Iraqis have a responsibility in this as well. Iraqis, because they don't trust one another, because they don't work with one another, because they'd rather trust a co-religionist or you know, someone for, of their own ethnicity or their own on, on, on ideology more than their fellow Iraqis across the dividing line. They left the door open. And once the door open, you can't complain. The, the work starts in Iraq with the Iraqis. But at the end of the day, again, we, we call a spade a spade. These countries, all of them are responsible, and all of them have Iraqi blood on their hands. I don't think an Iraqi who died anywhere in Iraq would care what Iran's motives and intentions are, or, uh, or, or Turkey or any other country, because this needs to stop. And, and clearly, uh, Jeff, you and I don't disagree on the different nature of these meddlings and their motivations and all of that. I fully agree with you. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Denise, anything to add on that? Yeah. John? Yeah. Uh, back to you, uh, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey. Um, it is enticing and um, appealing to look in the rearview mirror to when we did have an, a regional uh, geostrategic uh, clarity and our diplomats and station chiefs and others were largely on the on the same page for better part of a quarter of a century up until to choose an arbitrary date say 1979 which is not just the implosion of the Soviet Union uh, but uh, this was when the Shah hit the fan so to speak <laughs> and um, Iran had been up until that time a, a key component of what passed for de facto a regional a strategic uh, viewpoint of harmony from Morocco to Muscat, Baghdad to Berber, Algiers to Aden, Alexandria and, uh, and, and Aleppo in between. Uh, as a question one is put is uh, if Iran's government falls, which I don't see happening, but if it were to happen, uh, that ease that we had for that previous strategic regional clarity, where would it come from? I mean, Saudi Arabia would be a player. It's the leader of the Arab bloc. It's the leader of the Middle East minus Israel. It's the leader of the 57-state Islamic world. But domestic politics in the United States would preclude even a serious and favorable discussion of, of Saudi Arabia being that candidate, that linchpin, certainly for a pro forma regional security strategy, however de facto it might be on the ground. Jim? Uh, Did you comment? Yeah, sure. Um, you don't necessarily need an American-led regional security system. Right. There is no American-led regional security system in sub-Saharan Africa mm -hmm. other than our occasional interventions against terrorists, which right. in little bitty pieces is very important, but generally is not you know, the same level. There's no American-led security system, although we have a treaty in um, Central and South America. And you remove China and North Korea from the equation, and you wouldn't have, you know, uh, the, the, you don't have 
problems among the nations of East, and East Asia and the Pacific. Uh, it's rather like Africa, same thing with Western Europe. If you can remove the specific threats to security, and in the Middle East right now, they are primarily Iran and more subtly Russia and uh, extremist terrorist movements, but primarily today Iran, if Iran were to suddenly change, then you might not need the same security arrangement. The problem is that even under the Shah, Iran had regional ambitions, mm -hmm. and these led to frictions oh with the Arab states. I think that they would still be, but it's something that just like there are countries in South America that have regional aspirations, and the South Americans seem to work it out among themselves pretty well without us. I think that would be much more the case if you could remove an Iran for various reasons None of the countries in the region, even Israel, think they can totally handle Iran on their own, thus the need for us. Mm -hmm. Anyone else want to comment on regional security? I think you're right about uh, the Iranian ambitions prior to the Iranian Revolution uh, of 79. This is one of the reasons for the establishment of the GCC. Mm -hmm. In um, the autumn of 1976, the Sultanate of Oman uh, thought, well, let's, let's give it a try. Let's invite the representatives of all eight Gulf countries and explore the possibilities for cooperation. The six GCC countries, what became is, they couldn't get a word in edgewise. The Iraqis told them to shut the uh, shut the heck up. And the Iranians, in, in essence, uh, said the same. Mm -hmm. Both wanted to dominate. Both wanted to be the, the hegemon. And that was pre the Iranian revolution. That was a message that, at least according to GCC officials, said, we learned our lesson then, that one day we'll have an opportunity to get together ourselves and we are not going to invite either of those two vipers to our chest. <laughs> well, uh, John, with that uh, comment, we have uh, exhausted our, our time. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Abbas Kadam, Denise Natali, Jim Jeffrey, Dr. John Duke Anthony, our, our host, and thank all of you for coming today and for your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.